Alright folks, I'm going to read from this book today called Winged Stallions and Wicked Mares Horses in Indian Myth and History by Wendy Doniger Alright Chapter 1 Horses in Indian Nature and Culture <clears throat> Life's like Sanskrit read to a pony. Lou read in from What's Good, the Thesis. In this book, I want to explore three strands, the nature of horses, the history of India, and the Sanskrit and vernacular storytelling traditions to see how they twine together to form the mythology of horses in India, paradoxically, <clears throat> paradoxically rich despite the rarity of real horses. Images of horses occur in the earliest Indian texts and artistic images. So widespread is this presence of horses that the fact that no horses are found in the Indus Valley Civilization circa 2000 BCE either in physical traces or artistic representation is strong evidence that this culture had no connection with the Vedic world that is the root of early Indian literature and religion. So too, real horses played no part in the lives of ordinary Indian villagers. Horses were too expensive for all but the most privileged people to own. Especially in ru rural areas, the bullock cart... <clears throat> And not the horse cart was used for transport. The Tonga appears much later. The Tonga, what the fuck does Tonga here mean? The Tonga appears much later and was mainly confined to cities and small towns. What is so remarkable is that despite this actual absence, horses are lovingly depicted not only in the great monuments of Indian art and literature but in village art and storytelling and ritual throughout the subcontinent, throughout Indian history. <clears throat> Horses as invaders. Most of the peoples who entered India over the centuries rode in on horseback. First came the Vedic people formerly known as Indo-Europeans, more properly Indo-European speakers, who brought their horses with them from we know not where, probably the Caucasus. See, it's just it's just so interesting that probably, uh, you know, probably the Caucasus. Why? Because, you know, fucking. And so how the fuck, <clears throat> how the fuck then did, uh, you know what? Okay, and then Greeks and Scythians riding over the northwest passes. Carvings at Sanchi from dating from the some dating from the second century BCE depict a number of number of northwestern foreigners, in this case mostly Greeks on horseback. <clears throat> Turks and Mongols. I'm just saying like which way do you think 
stuff flowed from. Huh? <laughs> Turks and Mongols, the latter to become known in India as the Mughals. So, like I said, I already did, did one on, on the Mughals, which are basically the Mongols. Brought Arabian horses from Central Asia and Persia, over land and by sea. <clears throat> so if we look back at horse history now, even the horses, like we just said, like I keep saying from all these things done on language, horses, horses, wheels, civilization, it all came out of Central Asia, man. The Central Asia and Persia. Over land and by sea. Then came the British who brought Cape horses from South Africa and whalers from Nor Nor New South Wales in Australia. <clears throat> Most of these people came peacefully as traders or migrants, but some came to conquer. It was largely because they had horses or better horses or more horses or bigger horses or all of the, all of the above that the invaders were able to overpower the Indian people who did not have such horses. How many horsepowers you got, bro? <laughs> to understand some of the reasons for the continual movement of horses into India, we need first to understand two different but intersecting aspects of horses, the physiology and mentality of horses, and horses as humans have used them. Horses move around in search of new grazing land, which they need constantly because unlike cows, who tend to bite off the blades of grass, horses, whose teeth are rather dull, pull up the roots of the grass or nibble it right down to the ground so it doesn't grow back, thus quickly destroying grazing land, which may require some years to recover. Horse breeders leave such fields fallow from time to time to allow the grass to regenerate, but, but horses in the wild, left to their own devices, range constantly to find new territory, moving on to literally greener pastures, the broad open spaces eminent domain. <clears throat> As Virginia Woolf remarks in Orlando, Chapter 3, the gypsies followed the grass. When it was grazed down on, they moved again. Horses. Horses. Okay, the ancient Indo-European horse owners mimicked this behavior as they responded to the need to provide grazing for their horses once they had domesticated them and kept them from their natural free grazing habits. They rode roughshod over other people's land and took it over for their own herds. This spirit was expressed in their very vocabulary. The Sanskrit word amhas, A-M-H-A-S, constraint, from which comes our anxiety and the German angst, expressed the terror of being fenced in or trapped. <clears throat> I'm just saying Sanskrit, German, and uh, what is it? angst, anxiety. I'm just saying Sanskrit and Latin. That was the one. The, how how does where is this connection 
coming from? This Indo-European, where is this connection coming from? What part of the story, the hidden history, are we not being told? Um, that one video I shared, he said that it was basically Greek and Latin were dumbed-down version of Sanskrit. So if the Indo-Europe, if there's an Indo-European connection, and the language is saying that the Greek and the Latin is the is the dumbed-down version of Sanskrit, then I'm just saying which civilization has been around longer because of temperature. That's all. Temperature. Okay. The arch villain of the Rig Veda is the serpent Vritra, the restrainer who coils up around the mountains and holds back the waters. Wow. That is some crazy imagery. Okay. And... And the opposite opposite word, Britu, broad and wide, is the name of the first king, the man whose job it was, like that of all the Indian kings who followed him, to widen the boundaries of his territory, to create Lebensraum for his people and his horses. Prithvi, Prithvi a feminine form of Britu, is a Sanskrit word for the earth with its wide open spaces that such kings must always conquer. It was not merely as is often argued that the horse and more particularly, particularly the horse-drawn chariot with its spoked wheels made possible conquest in war. The horse came to symbolize conquest in war through its own natural imperialism. Indian climate and pasturage. But the land of India did not welcome horses. It is not easy for horses to find good grazing land in South Asia, for they are not well adapted to conditions in most of the area most of the time. Of course, the climate has changed in various ways over the centuries, but the basic patterns have pre prevailed throughout the historical period that concerns us from 3000 BCE to the present. Horses hate the humid heat of the Indian plains, and during the monsoon rains, their hooves soften in the wet soil and pieces break off, causing painful recurring sores. Yeah, that would uh, definitely be reason not to <laughs> stick around this area. The violent contrast between the monsoon and the hot season makes the soil swing from swampy in one season to hard, parched, and cracked in, in another. One ancient Indian textbook of horses, the Ashvashastra, insists that you should not ride horses in the three months of the hot season. And another medieval text, the Agni Purana, says winter, the cool month, and spring are for riding horses. In summer, autumn, and the rains, the riding or harnessing of horses is forbidden. 
So where, so, so then where the fuck is the Vedas getting all this shit from? I'm saying it's that whole Central Asia area, right where <clears throat> the Tibetan plateau comes down into the, the Himalayas down into the Middle East over Pakistan and that whole area, like, that area <clears throat> is, anyways... Though the Indian soil apparently has enough lime and calcium to support cattle, it is not good soil for horses. Contemporary breeders now add calcium, manganese, iron, and salt to the horse's diet. That's interesting, huh? It's like... Hmm. So I wonder where horses naturally... Wonder, okay, there are very few tropical areas in which horses do well. Southeast Asia is one. And even there, it takes a great deal of work and money to keep them healthy. Horses breed with difficulty or feebly in the extreme south of the Indian Peninsula, and the suitability of the land for horses declines sharply towards the south and the east of the subcontinent. The Deccan Plateau and central India provide suitable grazing land, but this becomes parched between May and September. Isn't that, it's just, it's just crazy that basically <clears throat> that all depends on the season, which is basically the position of the earth and the sun and temperature. And that temperature is basically what produces uh, <clears throat> water and humidity and, and, and uh, rain, that whole process and and then um and then comes the grass right because of all this then the water then from the soil comes the grass so the grass is like let's say just the hair on the skin right and the horses graze on that grass and just because <clears throat> of temperature that grass, which this horse feeds on, doesn't grow. And so that horse can't stay in that area because, you know, it uh, can't eat. So, we are like smoke <laughs> in the wind, man. There, we think we're permanent, man. All right. Even during the grazing season, which lasts only from September to May, the grasses are sparse and not good for, for, for fodder. And since the best soil is mostly reserved for the cultivation of greens and vegetables to feed a large population, many of whom cannot afford to eat meat, there is relatively little room for horses, even in those places where more nutritious fodder grasses are found, such as the eastern extensions of the arid zone in the north and northwest, and particularly in Rajasthan, 
where horses have been bred successfully for centuries. Still feeding essential during the dry months is out of the quest is out of the question for subsistence farmers and in any case stall feeding is never as good for horses as active grazing since there is no extensive pastures pasturage most horses are stabled as soon as they are weaned unable to exercise or develop full strength or fitness Okay, um, basically, horses in the Vedas. I want to get to like the literature part. Okay, <clears throat> stallions are heroes and mares villains. In the oldest Indian text, the Rig Veda, composed in Sanskrit in northwest India. 1500 BCE, and in the supplements to the Rig Veda, the Brahmana, Brahmanas, and the Upanishads. These Vedic texts present a consistent vision of the horse as a stallion, martially and sexually potent, the ultimate macho sacrificial animal. In the Rig Veda, the horse represents the Aryas, as they call themselves, against the indigenous inhabitants of India, the slaves, Dasyus, whom they associated with the serpent Vritra. Okay, I don't know how much of this is still uh, accepted uh, in India. But anyways, but the Vedic texts also contrast the good stallion with the dangerous mare, a scenario that is rooted in the conditions of breeding horses in India and that continues to dominate Indian mythology until the, until the medieval period. I just It's just crazy because like horses had to always usually most of the time had to do with the royalty because they were the only ones who could afford to fucking keep them so you have um you have all this kind of literature back in the day of like just horse poetry horse literature just viewing horses as heroes and gods like there's all this stuff about horses and i mean i guess i guess you can see why because i mean even in shamanism the the drum your mind is symbolized as a horse i mean even <laughs> there's a fucking movie called spirit right the animated movie uh, about about spirit, which is a horse. Uh, Jesus H. Christ was a horse, which is a symbol of your mind. So basically, this 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 imagery had to come from somewhere, and I've been trying to see like where all this stuff fits in, and like recently, uh, it was from one of the Robert Thurman lectures. <clears throat> where he was explaining how old Tibet used to be and I was like you know what like 
A lot of I I don't have too much. I have not heard too much history about old Tibet. You know, before it became all Buddhist and about peace. So that old Tibet, their history, the way uh, he was he was just telling a bunch of different stories. I was like, you know what? This sounds a lot like where all this stuff could have come from. I mean, Tibet is known as the the roof of the world, I mean, so to say. So if you, if you look at their, their temples or monasteries up there, their palaces, it's like literally uh, a city on a hill, <laughs> like in the clouds. So if anything, I think these old tibetan stories maybe history i'm gonna have to look into that a lot more but i think there's definitely something going on with even the star-shaped towers that are in the himalayas the older ones are higher up so like i don't know anyways that's okay i'm just gonna but the Vedic texts also contrast the good stallion with the okay, blah 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 Indian okay. In this earliest period of recorded Indian literature, the stallion represented um, martial and political aggression and aggrandizement, particularly the invasion of hostile territory as he would continue to do in later Indian history, and Upanishadic horses already began to symbolize the unbridled passions that pose a danger for Indian ascetic traditions. Three Rigvedic hymns tell us that the Ashvins, twin equine gods, gave a man named Pedu a horse that had the power to destroy snakes. Okay, so like when I read some of this Vedic stuff about the gods and whatnot, and then you know they do like so many comparisons with the Greek culture and their their gods and the Vedic gods and the comparisons and the similarities and and and, and just just like the symbolism, like it's it's all very. Like, so, I'm saying if you go further east, you find all the symbolism and imagery in, in the shamans, in shamanism. So, it's just very interesting because it feels like the story, the history we've been given, only looks, you know up to a certain point or whatever on the world map and leaves the rest of it out but it's like the further you just look back and investigate and look at the images and the stories and the patterns and it's just I don't know I'm just saying this is very interesting because okay this is part of a widespread, let me read this part again. Three Rigvedic 
hymns tell us that the Ashvins, twin equine gods, Jesus and Pegasus, gave a man named Pedu a horse that had the power to destroy snakes, right? And he shall crush the, the, the serpent's head on his heel, right? They love that scene from Passion of the Christ, Passion of the Christ when Jesus uh, steps on the snake's head, right? This is, this is talking about um, horses. They gave a, a, a man named Pedu a horse that had the power to destroy snakes. The, the, the twin gods in the Greek uh, pantheon, who are they? Um, I completely forget their names. I, am, I, I suck with names, but the, you know the ones. Okay, so this is also symbolism for the Zodiac. Okay? So there's a lot of things going on. This is part of a widespread mythology in which the horse that conquers the snake represents us against them as in the icon of Saint George on horseback killing the dragon. See, that whole symbology, I think they, they completely... They, okay. In a 10th century temple in Tamil Nadu, a freestanding statue of a winged horse rears up with his front feet resting on the hoods of a five-headed serpent. David Shulman connects this icon with Pedu. It is, Shulman says, almost as if the Tamil village shrine were offering us a graphic representation of this almost forgotten Vedic symbol. The sacrificial stallion in the Rig Veda. The sacrificial horse must be male, like all Vedic sacrificial animals. The Rig Veda contains several hymns to, to the sacrificial horse. One identifies him with the sun and fire and with several gods including Indra, king of the gods and god of the storm, like his Indo-European cousins Zeus, Jupiter, Wotan, and Odin, the god to whom most horse sacrifices were offered. Did you hear that? Hmm. Is Jesus H. Christ a horse? Hmm. The, <laughs> Zeus is always uh, linked with the lightning bolt. You know, the lightning bolt is a symbol for shamanism, symbol for hor flying horses. It's a symbol of a volcanic eruption having lightning. <laughs> okay. Um... The poet closes by imagining the arrival of the winged horse in heaven and reminds him not to forget his human friends. When you whinnied for the first time as you were born from the ocean with the wings of an eagle and the four legs of an antelope, that was your great birth, swift runner. These are the places where they rubbed you down when you were victorious. Here are the marks where you put down your hooves. From afar in my, in my heart, I recognize your soul. 
the bird flying below the sky. I saw your winged head snorting on the dustless paths that are easy to travel. The chariot follows you, swift runner. The young man follows. The cow follows. The love of young girls follows. The troops follow your friendship. The gods entrusted virile power to you. His mane is golden. His feet are bronze. Oh my goodness. Is all those psalms in the Bible talking about horses? The gods entrusted virile power to you. Ezekiel 23.20 Okay. His mane, okay, his mane is golden, his feet are bronze, he is swift as thought, faster than Indra. The celestial coursers, reveling in their strength, fly in a line like wild geese, the ends held back while the middle surges forward when the horses reach the race course of the sky. Your body flies, swift runner. Your spirit rushes like wind. Your spirit rushes like wind. And then God breathed his spirit into man. Horsemen, if you write out that word. <laughs> and then Ezekiel 2320. Your spirit rushes like wind, your mane spread in many directions, flickers and jumps about in the forests. So a lot of times, basically the way our minds work is you project it on everything, okay? You, you are basically projecting your mind on everything you look at. And that's how you're, you're experiencing that object or whatever. And... You are using that object or whatever, animal, whatever, tree, nature, to basically express yourself. I mean, if you're, let's say, projecting yourself on a horse, and then you are basically, uh, you know, narrating the scene or whatever... It, you're basically what you're doing is it's like what Richard Attenborough does on the BBC animal documentary stuff, Planet Earth stuff. Yeah, it's basically what you're doing is you go get a bunch of uh, shots of nature, certain subjects, whatever, and then you pick the images to put the sto put a story together. I mean, this isn't rocket science. They even tell you that the the the, the story they're playing for you in an episode or whatever isn't the story that's actually happening. It's a bunch of clips from different locations, different days even. And they put a story together. And basically what you're doing, what Richard Attenborough is doing is projecting his mind onto these images <coughs> in a certain sequence that brings you a story which in the end brings you a certain emotional climax you can say of whatever the the feeling you want it to be so that's how the mind works so all this old stuff about 
horses and poetry and all this shit. It's like, yeah, because we didn't have TV to basically just watch and tell us everything. We actually had to go do shit. And uh, that's how we, you know, cut our cut our time, spent our time. Because even now you'll see, like, you know, people taking videos of their pets at their dog parks or whatever. And they'll, they'll voice it. They'll voice over it, right? What are you doing? You're just projecting different parts of your mind on these dogs now. What's your name? What's your name? Like, yeah, that's all we're doing. Okay. The celestial... Okay, I read that. Your body flies. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, your... Your body flies, swift runner. Your spirit rushes like wind. Your mane spread in many directions, flickers, and jumps about in the forest. The racehorse has come to the slaughter, pondering with his heart turned to the gods. This is Jesus being led for the slaughter. The goat, his kin, is led in front. Behind come the poets, the singers. The swift runner has come to the highest dwelling place, to his father and mother. See, they leave out that part. It's just, I and the father are one. It's always just, yeah, because it's the Pope and little boys. That's that's all. And they leave the mother to just the Madonna and the child. But they they just want that archetype. They leave out the other two. From the trinity of the goddess. They only want the mother. The unconditional loving mother that gives her life for her children. But they don't show the other side of mother which is Kali. Which is Maleficent. And and, and or or it's the mother or it's which or it's the it's the it's the young eighteen year old. Right? Those are the only two archetypes. Okay, they can control and use. Okay, but they don't want the Kali side. Oh no. They'll they'll stick that one in the mental asylum under heavy medication. They don't they can't handle the Kali side. Oh no. And guess what? Kali is a symbol of time. So guess who is crazy for putting Kali time in time out <laughs> who's the crazy one okay okay may he go to the gods today and be most welcome and then ask for the things that the worshiper wishes for the sacrificial horse like many a racehorse today has a goat as his companion but in india the goat was also, the usual animal killed in ordinary sacrificial rituals, less elaborate than the great horse sacrifice, the Ashvamedha. Remember the goat sacrifice in Jurassic Park to the T-Rex? <laughs> Another hymn describes and blesses in strikingly concrete images all the grim paraphernalia of the slaughter, as well as the dismemberment, the cooking, and the eating of the horse. Even in the Bible, they they have that scene of when uh, that one 
daughter of Pontius Pilate's wife, whatever, asked for the uh, the prophet. Was it John? Was it John? No. Anyways, the the Jesus's cousin, right? What was his name? Who baptized him? Anyways, he remember she wanted his head on a platter. So this whole theme is very. It, it comes with from this whole horse sacrifice thing. If you look up horse sacrifice in in the northern uh, Scandinavian countries, they have horse sac- horse sacrificing where they'll cut the head off of the horse and put it up on top of a pole. Also, apparently in Italy, if you look up this thing called Alexa Menos, it's apparently the first ever depiction. A picture, de- pictorial depiction of Jesus on a cross, and guess what? He has a horse head. Alexa Menos on the cross, or Alexa Menos and his cross. Okay. Another hymn describes and blesses in strikingly concrete images all the grim paraphernalia of the. Okay, I read all that. The poet then apologizes to the horse for all of this gruesome ritual and even. For possible mistreatment of the horse during his life. This goat for all the gods is led forward with the racehorse. The hewers of the sacrificial stake and those who carry it. And those who carve the knob for the horse's sacrificial stake. And those who gather together the things to cook the charger. Let their approval encourage us all. The charger's rope and halter, the reins and bridle on his head, and even the grass that has been brought up to his mouth. Let all of that stay with you even among the gods. Whatever of the horse's flesh the fly has eaten, or whatever stays stuck to the stake, or the axe, or to the hands or nails of the slaughterer, let all of that stay with you even among the gods. Because all the fat is the Lord's. Whatever food remains in the stomach, sending forth gas, or whatever smell there is from his raw flesh, let the slaughterers make that well done. Let them cook the sacrificial animal until he is perfectly cooked. Because all the fat is the Lord. And the burning aroma pleased the Lord. <laughs> okay. Alright. Whatever runs off your body when it has been placed on the spit and roasted by the fire, let it not lie there in the earth or on the grass, but let it be given to the gods who long for it. I don't know, man. What type of gods are this ta- is this talking about? The Bible, see... Is more like, let's say, a book that a lot of the layers have been basically peeled off. So what you get is kind of like this very, you think, very like this generic, safe, washed down, whatever. But if, let's say, you put back all the different layers that it actually comes from, these stories will... 
look very different. Okay. Those who see those who see that the racehorse is cooked, who say it smells good, take it away, and wait for the doling out of the charger's flesh. Let their approval encourage us. Like, this sounds like fucking just some. Okay, if someone riding you has struck you too hard with heel or whip when you sh when you shied. I make all these things well again for you with this prayer. Let not the dear soul burn you as you go away. Let not the axe do lasting harm to your body. Okay, so the even even in Korea, the Chun Machong tomb, the the heavenly white horse tomb. So the story with that even is that the heavenly white horse was used to 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 carry the souls of people to heaven okay let not okay let no let no greedy clumsy slaughterer hack and then also okay so after after the carry the souls of the people to of people to heaven so then you come to the verse where Jesus says come to me those who are weak and tired for i will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Get yoked, horsey. Okay. Um, let no greedy, clumsy slaughterer hack in the wrong place and damage your limbs with his knife. You do not really die through this, nor are you harmed. You go to the gods on paths pleasant to go on. The two bay stallions, the two rowan mares, are now your chariot mates. It also makes me think of um, um, hmm, interesting. Stallions has the word lion in it, but um, what was I gonna say? Anyways. Uh, let this racehorse bring us good cattle and good horses, male children and all nourishing wealth. Let the goddess Infinity make us free from evil. Let the horse with our offerings achieve sovereign power for us. The poet is quite shameless in acknowledging in gory detail the harm that has been done to the horse. Though he glorifies his death in order for, the, for his patron, to have the things he wants from life. An image in a manuscript of the Ramayana depicts the Brahmins at their grim tasks in the horse sacrifice. The Vedic Mare, Saranyu. The Vedic ritual of the sacrifice of a stallion is balanced by the Vedic myth of a goddess who takes the form of a mare named Saranyu, fleet. The Veda wraps the story in a riddle, but here is a brief summary of the plot. The blacksmith of the gods, so this is a shaman blacksmith, gave his daughter Saranyu in marriage to the sun, S-U-N, sun. And she gave birth to twins, Yama and Yami. 
Then the gods concealed the immortal woman from mortals. They put in her place a female of the same kind, Savarna, and gave that look-alike to the sun. Saranyu took the form of a mare, M-A-R-E, female horse. The sun took the form of a stallion, followed her, and coupled with her. From that were born the twin equine gods called the Ashvins. Adam and Eve gave birth to Cain and Abel. She abandoned them too. So this is, takes a different turn. As the later Indian tradition attempts to unlock the riddle of Saranyu, it draws upon many deep-seated, often conflicting ideas about human and divine sexuality and deception. In place of the statement that the gods concealed Saranyu from her husband, later texts blame Saranyu for the separation and speculate on various reasons for her flight from her, from her husband. As the son, he was too hot for her. As a mortal, he was not fit to mate with an immortal, and so forth. Okay, let me read this next part. Horses and snakes in the underworld in the Mahabharata and Ramayana. Horses run through the Mahabharata, the great Sanskrit epic, composed between 300, and 300, 300 BCE and 300 CE in the Ganges Valley. Though the central action takes place in the earlier Vedic world up in the northwest of India and what is now Pakistan. Yeah, that whole area, I'm telling you, man. It's, it's all these symbols seem to be... Okay. The conflict and collusion between horses and snakes comes to symbolize the tension between good and evil, both on the cosmic scale and on the political level, to which horses in India are always highly relevant. Okay, so this basically this horses versus uh, snakes imagery... Makes me think of Chimera, the Greek god, who uh, it was Chimera and uh, Chimera and Pegasus, or basically, the it was the Spartan soldier on a horse, on that flying winged horse with the spear, like, and he was pointing it at a great giant dragon or serpent okay so where was I okay horses are built into the very structure of the Mahabharata as it is narrated by by suttas men who are both charioteers and charioteers and bards each charioteer would have gone into battle with one warrior as a combination chauffeur and bodyguard. And then at night, when all the warriors retired from the field and took off their armor and nursed their wounds and sat around the campfire and relaxed with food and wine, food and drink and women, the bards would tell the stories of their exploits. Later, Traveling bards no longer participated in battle or drove chariots at all, but still recited the great poems as 
at sacrifices and festivals and night-long performances in villages. Yeah, sounds like what shamans did. Okay, so... Let me see. I want to read Buddhist horses. Okay. Chapter 7, Buddhist Horses, 500 BCE to 500 CE. Buddhism shares with Hinduism many stories and images of horses as well as the tendency to dichotomize equines in the Vedic manner, contrasting the good stallion with the evil mare. How interesting that the mare is always, Eve is always blamed for everything, right? For the good stallion, we will here consider a fundamental Buddhist myth, the story of the faithful horse that carried the future Buddha out of his life as a prince and into his life as the Buddha. For the evil mare, we will sample a range of stories about voracious horse-headed female creatures who bedevil Buddhist men. Stories about Buddhist horses are inevitably colored by Buddhist ideas about the meaning of life, which differ in many significant ways from their Hindu equivalents. So from now on, and more and more as we continue and move into Mughal and British and tribal worlds, we will be stretching and qualifying some of the basic paradigms that we have carved out of the Sanskrit, Corpus. In the field of visual art, too, in the field of visual art too, Buddhism had Buddhism changed the course of the history of representations of horses in India. The Emperor Ashoka, in the third century BCE, who did much to promote Buddhism in India and beyond, put a galloping stallion together with a bull a lion and an elephant on the great lion pillar that he had built in Sarnath to proclaim his reign his reign stallion ferrari hmm. the style of that horse seeming to burst with breath from within became the particular genius of indian sculptural representations of animals ever after the Jatakas, tales of the former lives of the Buddha, preserve quite a lot of information about horses. Huh, interesting. They tell us that horse dealers from northern districts used to bring horses to Varanasi for sale. Sindh horses were especially value valued and were used in royal ceremonies. Moreover, um, synth horses, wait, what, moreover, synth horses are milk white, white as lilies, swift as the wind and well trained. Horses like to eat pears and are fed on parched rice drippings, broken meats and grass and red rice powder horses are fierce when they become rogue they bite quiet horses but when two rogues meet they lick each other's bodies horses can also imitate men a horse watching its 
lame trainer as he tramped on and on in front in front and imitated him and limped too. A well-bred war horse will not bathe in the same place where an ordinary horse took its bath. Huh, interesting. Horses were employed for drawing state chariots and cars. Well-bred sinned horses sheathed in mail were used for war. There was a trade in horses. There was a trade in horses. There were valuers employed by kings to fix the proper price of horses, elephants, and the like. Good horses used to fetch high prices. In addition to this more or less practical information, the Jatakas also know about magical horses. A high-bred foal was sold at Varanasi at a high price. A separate price was paid for the foal's four feet, for its tail, for its head, six purses of a thousand pieces of money, one for each part. This horse could run so fast that nobody could see it at all. Well, that sounds like a... <laughs> it could run over a pond without getting its hoofs wet. Jesus? And gallop over lotus leaves without even pushing one of them under water. This is a fine Buddhist variation on the theme of the winged horse. In one Jataka, the Poja Janya Jataka, the future Buddha himself actually becomes incarnate as a thoroughbred Sindh horse, who becomes King Brahmadatta's best war horse. The horse saves Brahmadatta, employed from several from seven powerful attacking kings fighting on though he is mortally fighting on though he is mortally wounded as he lies dying he makes brahmadatta promise not to kill the captured kings but to bind them with an oath and set them free he also reminds brahmadatta to rule with charity uh, righteousness and justice and as they are talk taking off the horse's armor piece by piece he dies um, just a minute all right um, Gantaka the future Buddha's horse one of the most famous horses in Indian history is Gantaka the white stallion that Prince Siddhartha, also called Gautama Sakyamuni, <clears throat> the future Buddha, or Bodhisattva, Bodhisatta, rode before he achieved enlightenment. It's interesting. I the thing I shared one something about this people called the Saha people, but they're spelled S. A K H A or something, but it's basically like the same way the Sakyamuni, Gautama Sakyamuni Buddha's name is basically kind of made me wonder if like Buddha came from that tribe, the Saha tribe. But, anyways, um, Kantaka plays an important part in one of the best known verse versions of the story of the Buddha, Ashvagosha's. Buddha 
Buddha Charita or Life of the Buddha, a Sanskrit poem composed in the first or second century. Here, here is a summary of what um, Ashvagosha says about Kantaka in his poem. One day, Prince Siddhartha set out from the palace on his fine horse Kantaka with golden bells swinging from the horse's bridle. I'm just saying, Prophet Muhammad also had a magical flying horse. I'm just saying, where on which he would take his night journeys, his night flight, flying journeys from Jerusalem. I'm just saying, it's okay, it's in the stories. Okay, after a while, the prince dismounted and eventually encountered several gods who had come to earth in disguise to meet him. I'm just saying, if we just follow the Silk Road from the beginning point, which was Xi'an, China, to to the ending point over here in the west, the Mediterranean, which was basically Jerusalem, if all the stories flowing back and forth from 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 there was Buddhism and Buddha. I'm just saying, it just, if you look at the Bible stories, it just sounds like Hinduism and Buddhism repackaged. I mean, the Greeks got Hindu priests, Brahmin priests, right, who, who went there and taught them all this stuff. Even, even Pythagoras and all these Greeks apparently came and learned from the Hindu priests, apparently. So I'm just saying, the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, just sounds like Hinduism and Buddhism. Right? Um, if, you, if you just look at the stories, before monotheism, like, what were all these people doing? It was, it was all the same shit. It was all basically natural nature religion, and then shamanism, and then state religions, and then Buddhism. And then from then, then you had Christianity, and then you had started to get, I'm saying before Christ. okay, okay, whatever. It's just basically ones and zeros. We're, we're just... Okay. Um, after a while, the prince dismounted, eventually, encount eventually encountered several gods who had come to earth in disguise to meet him. Then he who had conquered the horses of the senses mounted his horse and returned to the city. Also, I wonder why it's called mount. Why is... Like, what, why, where did that word come from? Okay. After some time, uh, the prince decided to leave the palace forever. In the night, he, awa he, he awakened his charioteer, Chandaka, and told him to bring Kantaka to him quickly. Kantaka had strength, heart, speed, and breeding I don't know what that even means, and breeding. He had a golden bit in his mouth and a soft cloth on his back. His back, rump, and fetlocks were long. His hair, um, tail, and ears short and erect. His back low. His belly and flanks rounded. His nostrils, forehead, hips, and chest wide. The prince embraced the horse. Kind of makes me think of Prince Ali, of 
was it? Where was it from? Prince Ali of Abba. All right. Um, the prince embraced the horse and caressed him. Machiavelli's The Prince. The prince embraced the horse and caressed him, speaking sweetly to him, as if to a friend, saying, Best of all horses, you often carried the king when he conquered his enemies. Now you must help me to conquer death. O oh, death, where is thy sting? Buddha, Lord Buddha, and Jesus is, is, is the same character. It's the same character, man. It's, it's, it's all Lord Buddha. They just replaced it with, you know, a fucking white Anglo-Saxon, a white Anglo-Saxon version. That's all. And call it Christianity. That's all. Okay, use your speed and courage. Which uh, prince um, or King Richard or, or fucking what's his name? King Charles now, which he swore to protect the Protestant religion. Wonder why? Why is he? Why is he saying that? Why? Okay. Use your speed and courage for your own welfare and for that of the world. The white horse carried him without making a sound that might cause alarm in the night, stifling his neighing and walking with careful steps. Then demigods, yakshas, bent low to the cup the tips of their hands under the horse's hooves. And low to the cup, the tips of their hands, okay? That uh, movie, Quo Vadis, Where Do You Go, Lord? Where Do You Go, Lord of Horses? Shadowfax, Lord of Horses. Okay, after riding for a while, the prince entered a grove of trees and dismounting from his horse and stroking him, told Chandaka to return with the horse to the palace. But Kantaka licked the prince's feet with his tongue and began to shed warm tears. Yo, is this? The prince stroked the horse gently with his hand and spoke to him like a companion, saying, Please do not weep, Kantaka. You've proven what a good horse you are. Bear with me now. And so, though Kantaka was a powerful horse, he walked on in low spirits, turning back and looking into the grove of trees, neighing loudly again and again, piteously. Yeah, Jesus uh, in Passion of Christ, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before the day of his crucifixion, right? After the Last Supper, apparently... And what he, he, that's, that's where he, so to say, uh, fought off the devil and trampled the serpent's head, right, on his, on his heel. Okay, though he was hungry, he did not touch the grass or water that he used to enjoy along the path. 
When they arrived back at the city, the women of the city rushed out to see them. But when they saw that the horse had no one in the saddle, they turned back. Chandaka took Kantaka deep inside the palace. What if King Solomon is basically just Buddha or Shiva? Because you know, it says Queen of Sheba was married to Solomon. Apparently Sheba, I think, is just Shiva. Which in Korea becomes Shiva Seki, which is the son of Shiva. So, I don't know. There's definitely a connection. There's definitely a history that we're probably not being told. Okay, the horse looked around with tears in his eyes and neighed loudly, as if to tell everyone how unhappy he was. But the horses, but the horses stabled near him, thinking that his neighing meant that the prince had returned, neighed in reply. So too, people in the palace near there thought, since the horse Kantaka is neighing, surely the prince must be entering the palace. This is like Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. But when the women saw that it was just the horse, they wept. Ooh, he wept. Isn't that the shortest verse? He wept. Yashodhara, Gautama's wife, said, This horse Kantaka seems to want to destroy me for like a jewel thief. Jewel thief. He has carried away the one who is everything to me. You know, the word mani in Sanskrit apparently means jewel. Mani. So, M-A-N-I. So, like, before Germany became called Germany, it used to be called Germani. When uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar went to go conquer the Germanis, the Romanis. Means jewel. Sanskrit Sanskrit connection. Jewel. Okay. The thief comes in the night, right? The jewel thief. Okay. He has carried away the one who is everything to me. Since he could bear the lash of, sh of arrows, he could certainly bear the lash of the whip. Why then did he fear the whip so much that he stole my fortune and my heart? Now, after doing such terrible things, he neighs loudly, filling the king's house. But the wretched horse stayed silent enough when he carried away my beloved. Look at this. There's a horse involved with the beloved story motif. So... Yeah, there you go. The Song of Solomon's, the Song of Songs. Is, is This is like part of... This is basically Song of Songs. This is Yashodhara, Yashodhara, Gautama's wife. This is the Buddha's wife, Yashodhara. So, the Song of Songs, the part where the, the girl part, the, the, the right, is, is speaking... I wonder if that's basically just Buddha's wife, which is Yashodhara. Okay. And they're talking about horses because it does... Because, um... Because, um... Even in Song of Songs, it talks about horses and mirrors. Okay. Where was I? 
Now, after doing... Okay, but the wretched horse stayed silent. Alright, I read all that. If he had neighed to wake people up or made noise with his hooves on the ground, I would not have to bear this terrible grief. Chandika replied, Don't blame Kantaka or me. We are blameless, for we did not act of our own wills. The prince was a god among men, and he went away with the gods like a god. This fine horse never even touched the ground as he galloped, for the tips of his hooves seemed somehow suspended, and his mouth was sealed shut as if by some divine force, and that's why Kantaka didn't neigh. When the king learned all this, he fell to the ground, and looking up at the horse, he said, You did me so many favors in battle, Kantaka, but now you have done me great harm. Either take me today to where he is, or gallop there fast and bring him back again. But Kantaka did neither, and the future Buddha continued on his spiritual journey. Kantaka in this text carries the prince on two separate crucial occasions. Before the episode we have just considered, Kantaka had carried the prince by day out of the palace where he had been sheltered from the experience of human suffering into an open place where he encountered the four signs. An old man, a sick man, a dead man, and a renouncer that inspired his ultimate decision to renounce. Okay. Horses, religion, it's all connected. Language. So, I think there's definitely... I think there's definitely... A group of people that... Know all this stuff. I think they know all this stuff, man. Okay, um, let me see. Do I want to read anything else? I mean, like, I guess I could add this part. Horses of the British Raj. Okay, finding and breeding horses for the British in India. The British rode over India on horseback first under the aegis of the East India Company or Honorable East India Company or John Company or just the company. Interesting. It's called just the company. In the 18th century, and then under the flag of the British Raj, after Queen Victoria made India an official part of the British Empire in 1858. They stayed in India with their horses until India won its independence in 1947. John Lockwood Kipling, R Rudyard's father, Rudyard Kipling's father, 
described India as a place where everybody rides or ought to ride, a statement that reveals a stunning ignorance of the lives of Indians but was true enough of the British in India. As the British view of native horses in many ways paralleled the British colonial consensus about native people, the British mythology of Indian horses offers another variant on the link between the horses and heroes that we have seen at play in the vernacular epics. Like the native epics, the British writings mixed in with the realistic data about tack and heights at the withers, a great deal of material that speaks to other concerns. Gods and rituals for the equestrian epics, empire, race, and colonization for the British. As it was not regarded as practicable, practicable or economic for a regiment's horses to make a voyage of 5,000 miles, at first the British left their horses at home. Though many argued that only a well-bred hunter breed with thoroughbred blood could carry the nearly 300-pound weight of a trooper with his full gear, and though they did import some thoroughbreds during their first years in India, they were forced to seek most of their horses closer to India than to uh, England. In this early period, cavalry purchased their horses in the open market or when opportunity of offered or when opportunity offered captured them from the enemy. Cornwallis found himself richer by 3,000 3, troop horses after the Battle of Seringapatam in 1979. Many of them gradually came to appreciate some of the country breads, such as the excellent Katiawari, a small 14 to 14.2 HH animal, fast and hardy. The British had from 1810 a special re remount department to supervise purchasing and supply. Okay, there goes my dog. Sorry about all that noise. In the first half of the 19th century, they also imported vast numbers of South African Cape horses, which Dutch settlers had brought to South Africa in the 17th century and later crossed with Arabians and Thoroughbreds. Thor can come from thoroughbreds. Okay, the Cape horses, also called Borpford, Borpford, had more stamina and height, ranging from 14 to 16 hands, than Arabian horses. Lord Auckland, Governor General of India, presented a pair of Cape stallions to Ranjit Singh, the great Sikh leader, as a token of British friendship though Ranjit preferred his own gray 14.1 hands Punjabi stallion. After 1857, the Cape, I guess it's like nowadays, the comparison would be like your car. 
After 1857, the Cape horses, as well as the country breds, were superseded by whalers, which had been developed in New South Wales and Australia from thoroughbred Arabian and Cape horses. They were 15 to 16 hands, more powerful than Arabian or Cape horses, and had more stamina. Okay, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Well... Interesting. Okay. The gift horse. Alien horses. Throughout Indian history, horses have belonged only to people who are not merely economically other than the Indian villagers, but politically and often religiously other. Any Indian equine tradition is likely to reflect the influence of the many foreigners who brought horses into India. The first waves of these foreigners established the first patterns of Indian horse myths and horse rituals, patterns that we may still detect in contemporary folk folklore. But the themes are not merely repeated, parroted, they are changed, challenged. The fact that they often appear in, in inversion or even perhaps in subversion may suggest a submerged, perhaps even repressed, resistance against the imported equestrian forms. Though these foreign equestrians were often of low or no social status in the caste, caste system, they had to have had superior political or economical, economic or military powers to be able to afford the cost of maintaining horses in India. The horse represented this power, the power of the sorts of people that make other people want to tell them to get down off your high horse. The punitive military expedition rode into the village on horseback, trampling the crops. The tax collector rode into the village and took away nine-tenths of the year's harvest, leaving the villagers to near starvation. Policemen and petty officials were mounted and everyone else was not. Yeah, so it was basically kind of like a technology. If you had a better technology to... Control motherfuckers. I mean, they still do it now. I mean, we all saw what happened at the border with the with the Haitian migrants, right? With the... Yeah, they were all on horses, right? That's how they did it. Okay. Um, materially, the horses and their owners were the enemies of most Indian villagers. These... There is still a Hindi saying that advises you... Stay away from the fore of an officer and the aft of a horse. It was as wise to avoid those people as to keep out of the range of those back hooves. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to get kicked. My goodness. Okay, tribal mythologies in India speak of horses trampling to death the first humans created by the gods and over the centuries. Indian artists depicted horses trampling on people. No wonder that horses were demonized and treated cruelly in some of the texts created by Indians who did not have horses. Yeah, some of some of the descriptions of back in the day make them sound all like like dragons breathing fire and snorting 
you know, uh, steam out their noses. Okay. Uh, horses remained Kshatriya animals with all the negative connotations of that class. Power, domination, extortion, death. To which was sometimes added another factor. Some of these equestrian Kshatriyas were not Hindus but Muslims. The Indo-Persian poet Amir Khusrau spoke of the forces of Alauddin Khalji destroying the Shiva Linga in the Nataraja temple in Chidambaram as the kick of the horse of Islam. The poet Vidyapati in the early 15th century included horses in a damning condemnation of Turks. The Turks coerce passerby into doing forced labor. Grabbing hold of a Brahmin boy, they put a cow's vagina on his head. They rub out his tilak and break his sacred thread. God. Damn, they want to ride on horses, they use rice to make liquor, they destroy temples and construct mosques. See, I feel like some of these I feel like some of these things are done on purpose, just to divide and conquer. Just to divide and conquer. Religion is just another language, okay? And God came down and confused their languages. Okay, language is it's just okay. They want to ride on horses. Apparently, that is a sin tantamount to destroying temples. In the 17th century, Jesus went into the temple, started flipping tables over. Remember, imagine horses back hooves, boom, just busting tables over. Okay, um. In the 17th century, a Hindu from Afghanistan insisted that when he died, he wanted to be buried where he couldn't hear the hoof steps, steps of Mughal horses. Yeah, Jesus in Revelation coming on a pale white horse. It's, it's just a horse. <laughs> it's, it's just the image, man. It's all shamanism. I mean, even, even in the, <coughs> even in the Alibaba, no, sorry, the Arabian Nights stories, right? Even in there. It talks about, um, it talks about Satan, but Satan in the Arabian stories is a horse, is a flying, is a magic flying horse. Okay. <clears throat> and in the 19th century, the British preference for Muslims, in part because the Muslims were better horsemen than the Hindus, Generated great resentment. Huh, I did not know that. So there you go. That's where that comes from. One 
And the Muslims were better with horses and stuff because I'm assuming the influence from the Mughals, who are the Mongols, and the Mongols were all about horses. Okay. Um, one 19th century story depicts the wicked cobra king, Tatig the Nag, the Naga Takshaka, reading the books of the wisdom of the Quran. But as we have seen, Muslim ideas and Muslims often played a positive role in the lore of horses in India. The equine mythology of India reveals a surprisingly affirmative attitude to the many foreign equestrian rulers of India. The myth of horses from the water. Right, so yeah, this is interesting because this imagery comes from, you know, modern day Lord of the Rings, British, Tolkien, right? But this, okay, in many myths, magical horses come down to earth from heaven. This is an old theme in world mythology reflected in the pervasive Indian notion of the horse as a semi-divine creature. And it was enriched in India by the historical memory of horses coming down from the northern mountain passes as close to heaven as anyone could imagine. In the story of Denzigu, the horse comes from the sky but also from the Muslims. These These Muslims are the enemies of the ruler. They kill Densigu, but they are also the source of the magic horses. <clears throat> mm -hmm. There are, because the Muslims got the influence from the Mughals, who are the Mongols, and the Mongols, if you, uh, if you do your research, Genghis Khan was called a shaman. Genghis Khan used to be known as a great shaman. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there are even more stories about magical horses that come from the waters. The old myth compounded by the historical experience of the importation of horses from the sea. Many cultures have seen something oceanic in horses likening the rolling gait of the canter to the rolling of the waves and something equine in the ocean calling a particular sort of broken waves white horses. The idea that horses came out, come out of the water may also have been fortified by the easily observed, observed fact that they so often try to get back into it. As Francesca Kelly remarked for of her prize, of her prize Marwari, Marwari brood mare, Shanti, on the shores of the North Atlantic, she loves the water. <clears throat> Apparently also horses are great swimmers. Okay, it is hard to keep her out of it if we are near the ocean. Before drawing together the threads of this theme, let us consider just one more story, well two more, about horses coming into the coming into India from the water. A group of Chinese pilgrims came to India in the, 17, in the 7th century to bring Buddhist texts back to China. They told a mythologized version of their own story, the story of foreigners 
who came to India from another world. To the north of a city on the eastern borders of India, in front of a Deva temple, there is a great dragon lake. Mmm, dragon lake. Look at that. The dragons changing their forms couple with mares. The offspring is a wild species of horse, dragon horse, difficult to tame and of a fierce nature. The breed of these dragon horses became docile. This country consequently became famous for its many excellent horses. The Loch Ness Monster, is it? Since Chinese volcano? Dragon Lake? Okay, we all know, okay. The since so so this is what I'm saying. This is probably where it all connects, right? <clears throat> so the volcano, the dragon, then you got the lake, then you got these horses. This is just okay. Since Chinese dragons are part horse, part snake, sometimes part bird. See, like what? This is what I'm saying. Why are Chinese dragons part horse? And parts like what is going on? It was a simple matter for the Chinese pilgrim to assimilate his native dragon myth to the Indian myths of horses and nagas from a watery underworld. The exotic magical horses fertilize the native mares as the wild become tame. Well, that's one way of looking at it i guess another version of this story was recorded among the pamirs of the himalayas the lakes are believed to be full of sea horses especially lake shiva in badakshan and lake yashik yashilkul in high pamir <clears throat> during the night these sea horses come out of the water to graze and pair with the horses in the fields with fields this crossbreeding is said to be very good for the breed to venture out onto these lakes is fatal as the sea monsters would immediately pull one down into the deep well you don't want that to happen unless you had a deep sea diver all suited up and ready to go okay the crossbreeding <laughs> is good for the horses just to see if it's true or not. Let's let's just find out. What's at the bottom of the lake? What, huh? Like the crossbreeding is good for the horses, but not for the humans who own the horses. It's interesting because apparently some of these lakes high at the top of these mountains, at the bottom of these lakes, they have all these skeletons of humans and horses. Some some have horses horse bones in them too, I think, if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> okay, um the crossbreeding is good for the horses but not for the humans who own the horses. A fine example of the ambivalence with which Indian folklore regards horses, particularly horses who come from foreigners. As long as the crossbreeding takes place only among animals, it is entirely welcome. It's interesting because in India, the word for horse in in Hindi or Bengali, I think it's ghora, right? Ghora. 
Okay. And interesting, interestingly enough, the word for foreigner is gora, right? Gora, right? Something like that, if I'm not mistaken. And just that just means white, right? Whitey, white, gora, if I'm not mistaken. So this whole imagery of white horse foreigners, <laughs> one word, one sound, gora, gora, it's like, I don't know. I'm just saying, sound is consciousness. Okay. Where the fuck was I, man? God damn it. As long as the crossbreeding takes place only among animals, it is entirely welcome. This is a theme repeated in a number of texts. But it is worth wondering whether it, this welcome fertilization is not a remarkably positive displacement onto the animal world of the widespread human experience of a rape at the hands of invading foreign armies. Beauty and the Beast. These stories know that whether from the sky or the, or the sea, the best horses came to India from somewhere else. One simple reason for the positive attitude to the visitors from heaven slash mountains and the sea is the belief that there would be there would not be horses in India or or <coughs> sorry jeez or at least not such good horses <coughs> but for these foreigners <coughs> but then my question is <coughs> why would why would hinduism have <coughs> Um, a god called Hayagriva, who is a horse god. Okay, the 72 Riders of Kutch. A story about horses from the sea was told from time to time about Kutch, also spelled Kach, Kutch, and Kach. On the Arabian Sea in Gujarat, Kutch is where Abul Fazal, Fazal the Mughal historian, said the best horses in India were bred and where Moorcroft had seen mares that he thought might be suitable for the British army. <clears throat> Volume 5 of the 1880 Gazetteer of the Bombay Presidency Cites sources from 1610 that speak of a Kutch Raja who had a greed of horses not to be matched in the east. <clears throat> they were valued at 1,500 pounds and were said to be far above the Arabians not only for swift running but for staying power so that a man might ride one of them almost at full speed a whole day and never draw a bit. It's like showing off your cars, man. It's just like need for speed. <clears throat> I mean, the movie Hidalgo is a pretty good movie about horse racing, history of horse racing. The Gazetteer goes on to speak highly of these horses. Kutch horses have long been held in much esteem. 
generally a little over 14 hands they are very they are well made spirited and showy in action with clean bony limbs thin long neck large head and cheeks outstanding ram like brow full sparkling eyes and small soft ears his chief defects are his ill temper the length of his cannon bone and his ugly heavy brow the trade in horses is small a very <clears throat> a very few imported from Sindh but it precisely on this matter of the importance of horses into Kutch that the mythology that the mythology takes over in the Gazetteer narrative about the Sanghars mixed Hindu and Muslim cattlemen who lived on the north shore of the Gulf of Kutch one story is that in the 8th century of the Christian era, when King Punvar was oppressing the Sanghars, they sought the aid of some foreigners from Western Asia. 72 horsemen came and, came and establishing themselves on a hill three miles from Punvarana, Punvaranogad took the fort and killed the chief in their honor the sanghars made images of the 72 horsemen set them on a railed platform in punvaranagad <clears throat> with their faces toward the south and instituted a fair on the second monday of bhadrapad this fair, lasting two days, is attended by about 16,000 pilgrims, mostly Kutch Hindus. Isn't it interesting that, so, let's say from making carvings and statues of men on horses to taking down such statues, right? Throughout the 20th century, villagers in Kutch continued to make statues of the 72 men and one woman, mounted on horses the last supper was it a bunch of horses bojack horseman version of last supper and to offer sweet rice to the horsemen and ask them for boons <clears throat> the incident at the heart of this story allegedly took place in 985 ce when a ruler named punvro it's like uh, it's like uh, the book um uh, Oh my goodness. The fucking one with the horses. Don Quixote. Right? It's the it's about the soldier and his horse, right? It's it's interesting. All these uh countries if their origin stories is some some old dude on either a horse or or, or a bull, right? <clears throat> is interesting okay let me see do I want to keep because there was some part here which was yeah this is it gets interesting because it starts to connect all the way to okay okay they took the fort blah 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 Okay. <clears throat> 
when a ruler named Punro, also known as Punvar or Punvaro, <clears throat> had built the stronghold of Padar, Padargoth, and then is said to have cut off the hands of his chief architect to prevent <clears throat> that great artist from doing similar work for another prince. Soon after that, the legend continues, seven Sanghars who worshipped the god Jock came to Kutch from Byzantium. They offended Punvro. There are several versions of what precisely it was that they did. Who imprisoned and tortured them. They prayed to their god Jock, who came from Byzant Byzantium with 71 brothers and a sister. They killed Punvro and destroyed Padargath. The story, still retold in Kutch in the 20th century, sometimes adds that white-skinned horse-riding foreigners from Central Asia were the ones who came and freed the Sanghars from Punvro. Other versions of the story say that the 72 riders, including one woman, came from the sea and that after the riders saved the local villagers from the depredations of a demon, their horses were sent to Delhi and on the way fertilized the local mares. Or according to another variant, the riders blessed childless women, including the queen, with children. Mm. Seeing <clears throat> horses and virility. Interesting. Seeing a connection between jocks and yakshas, the gazetteer tells us that the Sanghars, out of respect for the saviors, call them yakshas after the fair-skinned horse-riding demigods of that name. Most versions of this myth emphasize your knight in shining armor, okay? Most versions of this myth emphasize the skin color of the foreigners. They were white-skinned foreigners said to have come in the 13th century from Anatolia and Syria, or white-skinned horse-riding foreigners from Central Asia, or Greeks, Romans, Scythians, or white Huns, tall of tall and of fair complex complexion, blue or gray-eyed. Yeah, like I keep saying, this whole Central Asian section part geography, you get like all the stuff from the DNA, or at least this is my my theory is you have one one batch coming up from Africa, and you have one batch coming down from Central Asia. Well migration um, starting point let's say anyways so like I said these look like these white skinned horse riding foreigners from Central Asia or Greeks Roman Scythians or white Huns well if you just go look at people from that region right now it's they're a mix they just look like a mix of your Euro Eurasian you get all the features. Okay. 
According to the Gazetteer, most of the Sangars of Kutch worship jocks or white horsemen, and the Gazetteer speculates on the whiteness of these writers. According to both Brahman and Buddhist writings, the Yakshas are a class of superhuman beings. Okay. It's like, who the fuck wrote this? Writings, the Yakshas are a class of superhuman beings, white, handsome, and mounted on a horseback. Mentioned in the Veda, they are generally supposed to have been a Himalayan tribe with whom the Aryans had dealings during or soon after their entry into, in India. So apparently the Aryans is not, it's, not, it's just a, a group of... Uh, people it's not like well let me just keep who the kutch yakshas were is doubtful obviously but they knew that it was the whiteness of these riders right but but the who they were is doubtful fair horsemen from the west the fact that their traces remain only on the coast would seem to show that they came by sea <clears throat> I mean, like, is it, is it, like, completely mind-boggling to think maybe the flow came west from the east? Why is it always, like, no, everything had to come, go east from the west? Like, but if you look at history and geography and archaeology, if we're just saying temperature, life, water... So, like, if it's cold and shit, nothing grows up there. I mean, yes, you still have life, but it's not as diverse as, let's say, where there is warmth, light, and water. It's, like, consistent all year round. Okay, where was I? Okay, where was I? This excludes from the number of possible Yakshas the Greeks, the Uechi or Indo Scythians, and the White Huns. There remain the Romans of the first, the Persians of the sixth, and the Arabs of the eighth centuries. The Romans may be rejected. Their invasion is doubtful, and they could hardly have brought horses. Arabs, too, seem unlikely. They would strike the Kutch people as ruddy, not as white, and by their con conquest of Sindh and their attacks on western India, the Arabs were too well known to become centers of legend. I mean, it's it's got to do with geography. Like I said, you look at go go Google up people from Central Asia and just look at their faces. It's basically Eurasians. From there, they just moved, they spread out into other locations and settled, and then those features just stayed because those people. I mean, you gotta. How do you grow a group of people? People, huh? <laughs> How do you do it? Okay. <clears throat> Cain and Abel had sisters. 
Cain had a sister called Lulua, and Abel had a sister called Eclamia from the first book of Adam and Eve. Apparently they have a bunch of books not included in the Bible. Where do these stories originate from, people? Okay, let me keep reading. It therefore seems probable that these Yakshas were the Persians, who at that time the chief seafaring nation in the Indian seas in the 6th century conquer, conquered the lower Indus, but did not settle, withdrawing as soon as the local ruler agreed to pay tribute. I mean, this is all very, like, interesting because it kind of just connects all of history from east to west with horses. Okay, where was I? Okay, L.F. Rushbrook Williams remarks that a number of British or even of Indian writers have set themselves to extract whatever solid basis of historical fact may underlie this mixture of crudelity and folklore and could thus serve to account for the unique Jock temples with their curious equestrian images with Kutch alone, which Kutch alone possesses. He scorns what he refers to as the standard account of Kutch, otherwise a generally reliable source in volume, blah, blah, blah. And he offers instead from memor memorialized history passed down through many generations of the royal bards of the Jadeja dynasty, a perfectly consistent and intelligible version of the Jock affair, which so far as the present writer knows, is here written down for the first time. This is his version. Early in the reign of Punru, there arrived on the shores of Kutch 72 men and one woman. Talk about, like... Okay, I'm not going to get into that. They had been shipwrecked and they landed on rafts at the anchorage of Jakau, the name of which still preserves their style or title of jocks. They were tall and of fair complexion, blue or gray-eyed. It was thought they came from somewhere near Byzantium. They were well linked and were presented with horses so that they could travel about more easily. This telling emphasizes the arrival by sea and makes the horses native rather than imported, the gift from rather than to the people of Kutch. <clears throat> As William's story continues, eventually the Jock's popularity made Punvro nervous. He persecuted them, and one of them killed him. This kind of has similar themes from the Old Testament King Saul and David, doesn't it? Okay, his widow, in revenge, had them all murdered. The people revered them as saints and set up temples to them. Williams speculates that they may have been adventurous members of the Varangian Guard of the Byzantine army or more likely Zoroastrians from the northern parts of Iran 
who during the whole of this period were emigrating to India in search of the religious toleration which Islamic persecutors denied them in their own country. And he remarks that the Parsis of Bombay have a tradition that some of the ships bringing their ancestors from the coast of Iran to the coast of India went astray, perhaps north to Kutch. Stella Cramrish argues, however, that these writers are not people fleeing from Muslims, but Muslims themselves, harking back to other untold memories from inner Asian horse-herding cultures. These apocalyptic horsemen transmute the fear generated by Muslim invasions into India into a liberating legend in which the evil power does not come from outside but is local, embodied in the tyrant Punvaru. The myth of Punvaru in Kramish in Kramrish's gloss turns the usual story on its head, telling us that the Muslims saved the good citizens of Kutch from their tyrant, and inversion of the self-serving British story, still repeated widely in Chennai today, that the British, especially the early East India Company, liberated Hindus in South India from Muslim control, and played not merely a neutral but a positive role in establishing an even-handed attitude to all religions in its new territory. Interesting. It's like you kind of send in religion first to scope out the logistics, statistics, numbers, facts on the ground, and then you bring in the army. <laughs> Thus, different variants of the equestrian myth cast different actors as the native villain and the foreign heroes. As the nature of the foreigners changes, so does the nature of the tyrant. The story of Punro may have grafted upon the widespread myth of the tyrant who cuts off the artist's hands, not untold memories of inner Asia, but perhaps a memory of such an act of cruelty perpetuated by an ancient ruler or another much more historically specific myth about the British. For the British treated the weavers in Bengal so cruelly, there is abundant testimony about this, that agents of the Raj were widely believed, apparently on no evidence, to have cut off the weavers' thumbs, or to have persecuted the winders of silk that they cut off their own thumbs in protest. The legend lived on into the end of the 20th century in a myth about an artisan from Kutch who made a diabolically clever box with a gun inside it which fired when anyone opened the box. He gave it to the Marquess of Dalhousie, the Governor General of India, who gave it in turn to his adjutant to open. The adjutant was killed, and Dalhousie had the craftsman's hands cut off. The myth of the weaver's thumbs may also have been enhanced by a memory of the famous Mahabharata story of Ekalavya, 
a low caste boy whose skill at archery rivaled that of Arjuna, the greatest of the noble Pandavas. To maintain the Pandavas' supremacy as archers, their teacher demanded that Eklavaya cut off his right thumb, which the obedient boy did. Fuck that. Fuck that. Till now, I cannot understand why the Haitians paid back the reparations to the French. You guys fucked up by doing that. Why the fuck would you do that? You guys were the first ones to fucking win independence in the colonized world. In the colonized world. And then you guys paid back this shit to the... Like, I was like, you guys did something... That's fucking bonkers. And then, then why would you go do that, man? Like, and then, and then look at you guys now. Ever since that happened, the Western world has been fucking the Haitians. And we're, we're talking about, you know, my God, man, we have such great actors. It's unbelievable, man. The myth that depicts benevolent foreigners bringing horses into India also underlies an older myth about Kutch. Abul Fuzzle wrote, It is said that a long time ago an Arab cargo ship was wrecked and driven to the shore of Kutch, and that it had seven choice horses, from which, according to the general belief, the breed of that country originated. See, a lot of, a lot of these our stories also have... Horses as our... Yeah, it's interesting. Apparently we came from horses. Apparently horses coming on rocks and then from that, humans apparently being formed. Anyways. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, this myth, which also bears a suspicious resemblance to the versions of the Pundro story in which the foreign savior is sometimes said to number seven with or without horses, are wrecked on the shore of Kutch, was then adapted into a tradition that the Arab horses swam ashore and fertilized Marwari mares, or were taken to the Marwar district and used as foundation bloodstock for the Marwari. Banapli Chetwode knew this as a story about Katiwaris and Mughals, and about a deliberate historical landing rather than a mythologized shipwreck. It is an established fact that the Mughal emperors during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries imported a large number of Arabian horses in India, and that these were landed at Saurastrian ports. Saurastrian that almost sounds like Zoroastrian. Ports on the west coast. They were then led or ridden to Delhi or Agra or Lahore, and on the way may well have been allowed to cover some of the country bred mares. In the late 19th... God damn, I talk about being a male horse back in the day, man. You, you basically, man... <laughs> you was gigolo, basically. In the late 19th century, the Nawab of Junagadh 
and possibly some other local rulers imported Arabian stallions and used them in their studs. However, none of these facts can explain the enchanting little ears of the Kati breed. You know, interestingly enough, when I was looking into the story of Samson, apparently the more darker versions of that story had um, parts where when Samson was taken captive by the Philistines and he was tied up to that uh, round rolling or grounding stone, grinding stone, it's, it's basically if you look up images of that now, you can see donkeys or horses tied around that thing and they just walk in circles that grind the wheat or whatever, okay? So there... Which made me wonder. I was like, was Samson a horse or a donkey? Because there's part in there's parts in the, in, in in his story where uh, he says, "With a donkey's jawbone, I have slain them. With a with a donkey's jawbone, I have made them donkeys, or something like that." And and also, um, what was I gonna say? Oh yeah, the dark part. So apparently, when he was taken captive in prison. By the Philistines, apparently, because he was such a he-man, strong man, uh, the Philistine men would take their wives to him so that they could breed some strong, uh, some strong babies. And apparently, Goliath, the giant that um, David had killed was apparently a descendant of Samson from one of those uh, apparently that's how the story apparently so just interesting what I'm saying okay let me see how much more is left of this I don't know if I want to read all this shit man but anyways I'm, I'm just gonna leave it there it's just it's just let me see. Let me read, like, maybe this last part. Also, the the Trojan horse, right? It's this whole horse thing is very, um... Anyways, let me read this last part, and I'm end this. In India, where most people don't have horses, horses may well take on their shadow persona as an unfulfilled wish as the symbol of what one doesn't have, of what is possessed by someone else. This lends horses, over and above their natural allure, all the glamour and pathos of the interior room watched by the child outside, pressing her nose against the windowpane. This is an exotism that has been assimilated into the native system of values as a complex source of ambivalent meaning. The Indian mythology of horses is a testament to the vitality of the imagination and to the human drive to go on and on responding merely to the memory or to the view from afar of a charismatic animal. Yeah, because we're projecting. And that's what horses did for us. We project on everything. That's how we live. We project. We live through through projecting. So... The horse was our best friend back in the day because that's what that was your transportation. So, 
Yeah, it's, it's all these different scenes in movies, the conversations, dialogues with the man and the horse or whatever. It's it's yeah, it's you're projecting your mind and you are talking to yourself. Jesus H. Christ was a horse, which is a symbol of the human mind. All these people have just lost their horses, that's all. They just gotta go find their horses again. Alright, peace.